retrospect was described as uh, a wire with too much current running through it. As a representative of America's counterculture in the 60s, it makes a lot of sense. And indeed, that may have been the case for a lot of people who knew him personally, but it's just more typical legend fashioning as, as rock and roll has it. Um, Jimi Hendrix is one of the greatest performers in American history, despite the fact that he essentially started his fame in the UK. And it's sort of hard to grasp how different he was from almost anybody else who was performing in any scene. Um, because when American audiences started to know who he was in 1967, uh, he just looked like an alien. Like, not necessarily like that, but but the clothes he was wearing and the music he was performing and the way he was performing, the way he held himself up, it's sort of difficult to grasp how much America was changing, if their cultural values were changing, the, the populace was, was latching onto it, how much it changed within three or four years at the end of that decade. And Jimi Hendrix was a huge part of that. Um, he was one of those guys that sort of found himself in the right place at the right time, you know, being himself, mixing these genres together, um, representing himself as fully and as pure as you can creatively and achieving massive success and recognition for it. Um, there are two uh, defining performances that we'll talk about more in detail later in the podcast. Um, the first one, the one where he was essentially introduced to the larger American audiences, was at a Monterey Pop Festival in California, where he uh, lit his guitar on fire and destroyed it and threw pieces into the audience. Um, and his performance at Woodstock two years later, where he performed that chaotic, uh, controversial rendition of the Star Spangled Banner that you just heard. And what they don't really talk about, what a lot of people don't talk about um, nowadays, and the reason why they don't is because Rolling Stone has sold enough copies of their magazine, is that they're both moments that are inspired by his childhood and the struggle and the strife he grew up with, the circumstances that sort of deeply affected him and made him who he is. Um, he was sort of able to take those moments and, and turn them into beautiful artistic spectacles, you know things that, that said more than could have just been said in words, you know, and even in music, technically, because they were done by him and from that foundation. Uh, we don't really get across how Jimmy was as a person because he did, he did interviews and he was really only around for a few years uh, and he wasn't able to express himself as fully as he possibly could have been before his death, but... The more you read about him, the more you understand that he was he was just someone who thought against the grain, you know. And some of that really does come back to how he grew up. Um, he was born essentially into an army family. Uh, his original name was Johnny Allen Hendricks, but when he was four, his parents changed his name to James Marshall because his father, who everyone called Al, um, was named James Allen. And so he was named after his father again. Sort of an honor. Um, but Hendrix didn't actually meet his father, or Jimmy didn't meet his father until he was three years old because right after Al and uh, his wife Lucille, who were his parents, before, right after the wedding, Al was uh, drafted in uh, World War II and 
he was not able to see his son as he was being born. The army didn't let him. Uh, they didn't discharge him for childbirth purposes. Uh, and in fact, they were so worried about him going AWOL that they locked him in a stockade for two months. Uh, and when he got back to the U.S. after the war, he couldn't even find his wife until uh, months later. And then, because of his military background and, and the fact that uh, World War II veterans were finding it tough to find employment afterwards, uh, it impoverished the family and both parents started becoming alcoholics and abused alcohol. And because of that, they fought constantly. And this sort of led to a rough childhood. Um, and Jimmy sort of grew up with those kinds of problems that would set in if your, if your childhood was rough. Um, when he was an early adolescent, uh, according to people who uh, took care of him and uh, uh, people who worked at his school, including the social worker who became concerned about him, he started carrying around a broom that he pretended was a guitar. It was a little bit like a security blanket for him. And it's funny because when he started playing guitar at age 15, which was years after he started carrying around this 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 makeshift guitar that wasn't even a guitar, uh, that was when he really started listening to blues and other artists um, for the purposes of getting better at guitar and for learning. It's sort of funny that someone who would later go on to change how the guitar was represented as a musical instrument um, would start looking at an instrument as, as literally as if he was in a relationship with it. Like a deep-seated psychological necessity to have something that, that was like a guitar. Um, and to further this, when he was later in childhood, when he was like 15, he was uh, cleaning an old woman's house and he found a ukulele in the trash that had one string on it. And his father was like, you can keep it. And so he kept it around and he learned, he learned songs on this ukulele with one string. That's how much he wanted to play guitar, you know? So you could see, you could see that deep-seated obsession starting. It, it was pretty obvious that Jimmy was just someone who was in love with the idea of playing a guitar. Like, it, it was a psychological thing. Um, so he grew up in trauma. Uh, his mother died of cirrhosis, which makes sense considering that she was addicted to alcohol. And she died when he was around 16, but he and his estranged brother, Leon, and this is important to mention because Jimmy is one of five children, and as the oldest child, every because they couldn't afford any more children, every single time his parents had a child, they would either put it up for foster care or adoption. And he was closest with Leon, who was the second child, but because he was in foster care all the time, he couldn't really uh, go and see him. And so uh, his relationship with his brother was, was kind of strained because of that. Um, so he and Leon were not allowed by their father to attend her funeral. Instead, the father sat, in, sat them down and gave them shots of whiskey and told them this is how men deal with loss. Uh, which is so fucked up, man. Like, especially, that, that, that's just, that, if you don't know any better, and he couldn't have at the time, like, that will just screw you up. And, you know, and looking later in life, you see sort of where he starts to have uh, mental issues with dealing with alcohol, becoming violent. That'll come later, though, when when he has achieved fame and all of a sudden is, is, is an extraordinarily high-paid performer and is being known for his music. Um, regardless of how he was treated as a child, his father was the only parent he had left, you know, so he kept a close relationship with him. He dropped out of uh, high school to work 
um, with landscaping to do manual labor with his father. Being an artistic child, he hated it, so he quit and then joined the army, just like his father. And then he hated the army, which also makes sense. Um, and really the only beneficial thing that he learned or experienced in the army, um, I have to believe, is that he befriended uh, who would become a really well-known um, blues musician, Billy Cox. Um, this is a man who he would later join on to uh, the band that came after the Jimi Hendrix Experience, Band of Gypsies. Billy Cox would be on bass. Um, and also with Cry of Love after uh, Noel Redding was canned. And this is what happens to artistic people that are forced into certain circumstances, you know. They just sort of rub against the grain. There's some dissonance there. And uh, it really does lend to the notion that some people are just born artistically and it's hard for them to sort of... It's the way they think. They can't really get behind things that that don't have any specific meaning or... or There's, there's just a thought process there that, that makes certain lives hard for them. Especially back then, you know. Um, before the counterculture, before people thought of things differently, philosophically. Um, so he quit the army. Uh, that wasn't working out. Uh, he was discharged for, honorably discharged for unsuitability, but he would later claim that he quit. Um, and he decided to try out music and become a guitarist. And in his early years, all he was really was a guitarist for a backing band, which didn't really suit well with his artistic dreams. And every single time it felt like he was on the cusp of success, which is ultimately what he wanted, um, it would just elude his grasp. He was formed in an early incarnation of the Isley Brothers before they uh, became a six-piece, uh, and uh, they recorded a song called Testify, which is a great song. It's worth checking out, but it didn't chart, and so no one really knew who he was uh, after that. He quit that band and then uh, started performing uh, in Little Richard's backing band, recorded even more songs, which did chart on the Billboard Top 100, but only at 92, because Little Richard back then was, uh, this was the late 60s, his fame was starting to slide. So that wasn't working out for him. And then right before he got discovered, he performed for Curtis Knight's new R&B band, recorded songs for him. He was doing better than before, but still he was unsatisfied being in a backing band and just sort of doing the the legwork, you know, not necessarily being known for his music, but for other people's music. And the fact that he was so skilled at the guitar and, and learning all these things, like, it's it's a necessary step for people to, to be in that position where you're working for somebody else and, and learning and getting on the road. And he wouldn't have achieved the kind of success he had achieved if he hadn't learned what he was known for doing earlier in his life. Um, when he was performing in Tennessee, for example, Jimi Hendrix is one of those people that's known for um, weird styles of playing that are nonetheless very um, technically skilled. For instance, playing with his teeth. Um, but people played with their teeth all the time in Tennessee. It was almost a requirement. Uh, he said that there was a trail of broken teeth right off the stage. Um, so he learned all the, to do a lot of that when he was when he was sort of incubating and. and and even though he was striving to be a solo artist, he still had that skill developing. And then when he was with Curtis Knight's backing band, uh, he was discovered by Linda Keith, who was the girlfriend of Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. She was mesmerized by his playing. She knew that he had a lot of um, potential ahead of him. 
and she recommended him to Andrew uh, Lou Goldman, their manager, and also the producer Seymour, Seymour Stein, but both of the people rejected him. Then he was introduced to Chas Chandler, who was formerly of the 60s band The Animals, and had left the band to start managing bands, saw him, saw the potential, just like Linda, and offered, you know, we can take you, we, we know you've got chart potential, I know you've got chart potential, uh, I'm going to set you up with a manager, I'm going to fly you out to London, so you're going to be out of America, um, and we can put a band together and see what happens. Um, Jimmy said yes, because of course he was striving to be successful. He flew out to London, there he started a life, he met a lot of people, and th of course, being in London in 1966, you know, 1965, 1966, it was a time where things were all of a sudden starting to shoot off. The Rolling Stones were getting big, the Beatles were getting big, something was in the air, like all of a sudden UK rock was starting to become extremely influential everywhere. And it was a great time to be a player in that regard, and Jimmy certainly met a lot of the people um, in that scene strictly because of the shows he played. Um, he put together the Jimi Hendrix experience, he met Noel Redding, thought that his bass playing was amazing. He met Mitch Mitchell, thought his drum playing was amazing. Um, together with his manager, they sort of fashioned an image for him. Uh, normally, Jimmy was went by the, the traditional spelling of his name, but uh, it was Chandler and Jeffrey's decision to change his first name to J-I-M-I -I to make it seem just a little more exotic. Um, and Jimmy loved that. He even wrote to his father. And I was like, hey, I changed my name. It's the same thing, but what do you think? Uh, and as he was playing shows um, in London, bigger and bigger shows with the experience, many of Rock's most influential players were really deeply impressed by him. Eric Clapton saw his playing and was just stunned in disbelief. A lot of the members of the Beatles, especially after when the experience played the Seville in London, this was right after Sgt. Pepper's uh, came out, the album. The curtains opened and he stepped forward and he started playing the title track, which just completely floored all of them. Um, in fact, it was that moment when Paul McCartney suggested to the makers of the Monterey Pop Festival, which was being held in California, that he needed to be a part of the festival, even though he was relatively unknown in the United States. Um, this was coming after... They had just released their debut album, Are You Experienced, which a lot of people consider to be one of the greatest rock albums of all time in that it was one of the first albums to sort of mix so many different styles of rock and roll, uh, blues, R&B, soul, Brit rock, American folk, um, this new nascent form of psychedelic rock that people were playing around with. Um, Jimmy was the kind of guy who sort of expressed his cross-genre intentions really early on in interviews. I remember him saying... Um, when someone asked him what kind of genre he was playing in, he said, we don't want to be classed in any category. If it must have a tag, I'd like to be called free-feeling. It's a mixture of rock, freak-out, rave, and blues. Um, and I mean, as far as his intentions go, that's exactly what that album was. Um, every single time I listen to that album, it's a lot more... It's definitely more diverse than almost anything in his catalog, and that's not saying a lot, but... To have a debut be so full-fledged and to know where it is you're going. Some of his most classic songs are off of that album. There's a rawness to the performance, and his backing band is obviously amazing. And, you know, his playing is insane, but also the way that he carries himself and the way he plays against the rhythm. and It, it, it's, it, it just took the entire United Kingdom by storm. The United Kingdom, of course, 
uh, was the only place that it took by storm because he was already playing shows mostly in uh, the UK and in London at that point. So they already knew where they were. In the United States, ironically, he really wasn't well known up until he played the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. This was essentially Hendrix's US introduction. Um, there were a lot of important people there. Um, and essentially, he just blew the house, off, the roof off the house. Like in terms of his playing, in terms of his personal style, there are iconic photos of him um, in long, flowing uh, clothes and and his uh, hair done up in a headband. And uh, the most well-known part, the thing that sort of got him so well-known and, and legendary in the U.S. and really raised the rates on his performance. Um, fee, if we're talking about it, uh, was when, and he had done this before, he set his guitar down and grabbed some lighter fluid and lit the guitar on fire and then destroyed it and threw pieces into the audience. There was a man who was there to capture the performance on photo and there's a specific framed photograph, it's now famous in rock and roll history, uh, with him, with his hands just over the guitar, summoning the fire. Considering w how people were viewing rock and roll now at, at that point, uh, it just made so much sense, and, and it really got people excited about what was going on and who, who this person was and what they were trying to do. Um, and it further contributed to that that sense of the summer of love, people's minds opening up, the idea that anything could be anything, and, and people are free, and idealistic, you know, uh, pejoratively hippie, you know, ideals that that would come to define the late 60s. So Monterey Pop was extremely, uh, extremely important to Jimmy. And, and after that, he just took off. Like all of a sudden he started charting on the Billboard Top 100 um, in, the, in America. You know, he was still doing very popular in the UK. Um, in his heyday, which was between when he wrote his second and third albums, Axis Poldis Love and uh, Electric Ladyland, um, he would go on to do so many different things. Many firsts appeared in his studio work and his playing. Um, there's just a whole freaking list. Uh, the title track off of Axis Poldis Love, which was already an amazingly, amazingly conceptual uh, psychedelic rock song, was also the first instance of stereo phasing, which comes right at the end of the, the song where the final guitar is going on. They panned it to both left and right in a way that caused the actual guitar sounding part to become more than the sum of its parts. Um, really experimental technique at the time, but now it's just a common thing in studios to do. And that was the first recorded instance of that. Um, his song Burning of the Midnight Lamp, which came off of Electric Ladyland, was also the first recorded instance of a wah-wah pedal. And uh, of course, Jimi Hendrix was one of those guys that sort of thought about the electric guitar in terms of how it sounds and not necessarily how it's played. That was also how he was influential in music in that the guitar itself, the electric guitar, not just not just the acoustic guitar and just how it was strung up in the simple um, full-bodied sound it produced, the electric guitar could make sounds that were once considered undesirable but now after Jimi Hendrix had its own vocabulary, you know, especially when you wrap it up in, in, a, in a style as palpably emotional as blues. All of a sudden, if you played blues with an electric guitar and you used feedback and you used gain and wah-wah and chorus and flange and all of these different effects that Jimmy would popularize, all of a sudden you could start conveying emotion 
in a way that was just no one even thought about before, you know, either because of tradition or because people were, or were afraid of changing the game or just people didn't think that way. That was one of the ways that Jimmy just sort of changed music forever in that regard. And there's so many acts and, and that would become influenced by him that would later on influence many people. He's a nexus for all of that. Um, on top of that, um, I remember listening to Guthrie Gavin a long time ago, back when I was into guitar music in high school, and he was talking about how Jimi Hendrix changed how lead and rhythm guitar parts were thought of. Um, when guitars were made all the way up until the early 70s, um, specifically Fender, Les Paul, all of the popular brands, electric guitars had essentially just two pickups. You played lead and you played rhythm, and that was what they were called. Um, and so if you were a lead guitarist, you'd just have your guitar switched to one side. And if you're a rhythm guitarist, you had your guitar switched to the other pickup. And because that was, it was just cemented. You know, you knew which part you were playing and both pickups were designed to pick up the types of sounds that would be, you know, would pick up the most uh, sound in those parts. But what Jimi Hendrix did as the only guitarist in a three-piece that wanted his sound to be all-encompassing is that he successfully meshed uh, lead parts and rhythm parts in a way that no one else did back then. For example, um, take his song Little Wing off of Axis Bold as Love, one of his most well-known songs. The intro, the sort of guitar solo, it is a rhythm piece. It's meant to state the riff of the song you know the the musical themes but he plays it like a solo you know like you can see where the, the it is a rhythm part like if you listen to it there is a music there's a solid musical theme it's not just somebody soloing over something else but he plays it in a way that makes it so versatile and so fluid that it's hard to distinguish between the two alternatively his uh cover of bob dylan's all along the watchtower which was his biggest single during his lifetime in america at least um, has a solo that's played like a rhythm part. Right during the end, um, uh, before the third verse comes in, uh, there's a part that's supposed to be a lead on guitar, but he plays uh, riffs and choruses that are reminiscent of the, the themes in a rhythm part, you know, a backing. Like, it's, it's one of those things where he mixed things in a way that were so uh, creative and novel and... That really changed how people thought about playing guitar. You know, it's just, the, the list goes on and on. This guy was just unbelievably creative and, and changed so much just by being himself and for thinking by himself. It's also hard to overstate how much creative freedom Hendrix was given, you know, uh, considering what people were doing back then and the fact that everyone sort of needed an image and, and sort of had to stick to their own roots. Quote-unquote, flying his freak flag was... It's a nice summation of what he was doing. Um, he also, like many 60s artists, formed the foundation of psychedelic rock. You know, a lot of bands like early Pink Floyd, Alice said Barrett, um, when the Beatles were doing Sgt. Pepper's and when the Rolling Stones was following that up, when Love was coming out with uh, Forever in uh, 1969. Um, he was one of those guys that helped sort of summon that, that spirit. You know, the drug-taking culture certainly helped. And finally... Jimmy was one of those guys that redefined what it meant to be a black performer, especially when you were doing music like blues, especially in the late 60s, um, music that had been created by black performers that, that had been championed by them had all of a sudden been taken over by 
uh, UK uh, white performers by um, American folk artists that were very white. And then the black performers were sort of shunted back to the background and sort of, they were sort of resigned to just playing this music that they had created, but essentially were sort of not on the forefront anymore. And to have this guy come along and redefine that to sort of do his own thing, play that kind of music, but do it in a way that made sense to him and changed everything. It was so unique. Um, it, he was inspirational in his own regard. Um, so that's what he was doing throughout his lifetime. He was really only active as a musician for seven years, a solo artist and, uh, and lead songwriter for three and a half. The problem with that and with his, uh, the demons he was still facing uh, in his youth up until his death um, was that the rock lifestyle can exacerbate that, especially relentless touring. Jimmy was a known perfectionist in the studio as well, and that has its own self-esteem problems and the, the artistic frustration and everything. Uh, he was restlessly creative, but he was also surprisingly very violent, especially when he was consuming hard liquor. Um, there have been multiple stories of him uh, getting into brawls in England, especially there was one specific one where he required medical attention in 1969, he uh, believed that his friend had broken into his apartment and beat him up after consuming hard liquor. He also beat up his girlfriend, which is atrocious. Um, he, obviously, the rock lifestyle requires that you keep yourself awake with uh, amphetamines, and that's what he did. Um, he was also a huge purveyor of hallucinogens. That makes sense, considering the psychedelic rock aspect, um, the freedom of his mind, the artisticness of it. Um, it is funny hearing stories of him trying uh, LSD for the first time when someone offered him acid. He was like, I, uh, I don't really like acid. Could I have some LSD instead? And this was well before he was taking it constantly and, uh, and having people dose him without him knowing. That's a whole other story. We're getting now to the end of his life, the last year. Uh, at this point, his creative frustrations are at an all-time high. Uh, his relationship with his bassist, Noel Redding, is degrading because Hendrix's work ethic was, shall we say, not great. He would show up to band practice three hours late. Um, he would invite several people, tons of people, into the studio. And that was obviously clashing with the actual, like, the, the recorded aspect of it. You need sort of silence and, and a controlledness. And Redding was just getting tired of it. And then they... They split ways, but also when Hendrix was forming um, Cry of Love, uh, he hired Billy Cox and didn't tell Noel Redding that, that um, they were going to start again, and that was just another nail in the coffin with that relationship. Um, there's a, one more legendary performance that Jimi Hendrix uh, performed in his lifetime before he died, and that was uh, Woodstock in 69. It was near the close of the festival. Um... And it's interesting to hear the circumstances surrounding that because when Hendrix was set to perform, uh, he was set to perform for an audience of essentially 300,000 people. You know, this was midnight on the last day of Woodstock. It's one of the most widely attended festivals in the history of America. Um, and Jimmy was one of those guys that, you know, was a shy, sensitive person, even though he had achieved so much fame and and was getting used to it, he still hated to play to crowds that big. I understand, you know, it's, it's, 
the message gets lost and it, you can really tense up, especially when you feel the expectations being weighed on you. So instead, he waited to play until later night in the morning when people who had waited to see him play were starting to leave and then the crowd had shrank to maybe a tenth of its size. He was still performing to, uh, to uh, 30,000, 40,000 people, um, but it was significantly smaller. He also, due to the use of amphetamines and, uh, and, and practice and uh, all the things leading up to it, he hadn't slept for three days. So he was already sort of out of his mind. Uh, taking drugs. Uh, the set was wild. There is some recorded uh, footage of it, especially they used it in the, the famous documentary. Um, but what he was most well known for was a controversial uh, performance of the Star Spangled Banner that many interpreted, especially a lot of critics interpreted as a criticism of the Vietnam War, which was happening at the time. Um, but a few days later, Hendrix said that he intended it for it to be patriotic. He said the air was static. He used to say that a lot. Um, and he, he wanted it to be a song that was sort of a rendition that was representative of uh, patriotism, of, of being proud of being, yeah, like, let, let's go America, you know? Uh, and the feedback that he used and the, the effects and the gain he stated was a way to represent, like, jet fighters and bombs dropping from above, you know, m making the song visceral. Now, that's important because, as we mentioned, those two performances, the Monterey Pop Festival and the the Woodstock Festival, um, are both representative of moments of his childhood. Um, lighting his guitar on fire, considering how much Hendrix needed a guitar just to say, stay psychologically sane and not as anxious, having him uh, destroy his guitar on stage really felt like a sacrifice. It was one of those things where if you knew where he was coming from, it made that statement, that physical statement, that much more effective, that much more... Uh, powerful you know he did say in an interview that um as to why he did it he said it just felt like i needed a sacrifice and you sacrifice things you love and i love my guitar similarly it's hard not to bring up his military past when when you talk about his rendition of the star spangled banner and how um the experiences he had in the military sort of allowed him to feel like he was making a personal statement as well as a political statement doing the star spangled banner you know, one of these guys that really, you never really thought about it, but he really thought and felt about doing things during his performances that were meaningful and, and made sense on a, a pathos level as well as logically, you know. So, as is the case with a, a lot of performers who hit that level of fame, especially when you're that young and you're taking all of those drugs, he started to fall apart. He was violent with his friends. He was violent with his lover. Um, there was an occasion during the last performance of this band that he had formed called the Band of Gypsies, which was the band that he performed with, with uh, at Woodstock. Um, allegedly, his manager, Jeffrey, dosed him unknowingly with LSD before the performance, uh, and he played for maybe 10 minutes. Um, according to people who were there, he sat on a couch before the show, put his head in his hands, and then didn't move an inch until it was ready to play. And then when he got up on stage, there was a, a fan in the audience that asked him to play Foxy Lady, and he snapped at her. And then he played a song 
that he said that's what happens when Earth fucks with space, and then he sat on the drum riser and then he left. Allegedly, uh, people who saw him be dosed with LSD, like uh, Cox, for example, um, says that uh, he was dosed with it by his manager to try and get the experience back together, which is a ridiculous claim. You know, sure Jeffrey was making a lot of money with uh, with the experience, but that that's just stupid. Um, after he started Cry of Love in 1970, shortly before he died, uh, he seemed to be in a little bit of a bout of depression during that last European tour, just really not giving his all during his performances. Um, there was a moment during one of their shows where he introduced himself as I've been dead for too long. You can read into it as much as he can, but what makes his death so strange is that in a certain way it does come across like a suicide. Uh, he was staying at the Samarkand Hotel um, with a, a, a girlfriend of his. They were partying, he had drank a lot. He took 18 times the recommended dosage of her sleeping medication, mixed it with alcohol, which you shouldn't do. He woke up in a coma, or his girlfriend found him in a coma, and he was dead on arrival upon reaching the hospital. Asphyxiated, choked on his own vomit. A close friend of his, Eric Burden, afterwards, and the Rolling Stone article written about his death was written two weeks later, which nowadays seems ridiculous. Um, Eric Burden claimed suicide. He said that he had found a poem written by Jimmy that came across like a suicide note. Of course, a lot of people have seen Jimi Hendrix's poetry and sort of match it up, and it doesn't really seem like the case, like it wasn't written for that purpose. Um, but that's the thing about deaths like that. They're mysterious, and who knows why they died. They're not, they're not, they don't stick around long enough to tell you how they died. Uh, the fact of the matter is Hendrix had some serious demons, and the drug use didn't help, touring constantly didn't help, Feeling the stress in the recording booth and, and that sense of perfectionism didn't help. Purposeful suicide, for that matter, isn't completely out of the question. It's still most likely that it's, it was accidental, but it really was a shame that it was a fate for a person that, that thought so much against the grain. You know, this is the third person in the 27 Club that, that chronologically we're talking about. And the next couple of people are going to be coming very shortly after this. Um, Janis Joplin died very shortly after, and so did Jim Morrison. And, you know, you can really claim that it's the lifestyle that kills them. You know, rock and roll killed this person, you know. But the funny thing about making art is that a lot of people sometimes do it because they're fighting something, you know. It's not necessarily born out of mental dif dysfunction, but it's, there, is, there is a part of creative expression that is taking everything about you, all of the darkness and the negativity, um, and mixing that with positivity if you can, um, expressing some kind of trauma. You know, Whether or not Jimi Hendrix aimed to do that in his art, it was indeed a part of him. And while he is well known for being an influential person and changing the world, some would say for the better as far as artistic expression is concerned, you know, knowing that and understanding that these people are humans with human problems, you know, it's good to dispel 
the legend, especially nowadays when, when rock and legend and, and myth-making is less important and possible now than ever, it's good to, to realize that these people dealt with these things and, and, and that it's, you know, it, it helps to sort of, it's the empathy of it, you know? One step closer to understanding that we're all people. Um, so that was Jimi Hendrix's life, and that was his death. Uh, and that is the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to me ramble. Uh, next week, we're going to be getting into Janis Joplin, um, one of the most visceral singers of all time, just a bright shooting star, a life also plagued by trauma and a death plagued by trauma. Um, it'll be super interesting for you to learn all that stuff if you would like to. Uh, until then, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Rob Mora. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you.